Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Welcome to our very first episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. Our guest today is top party leader, Shai Navot. Shai has worked as a lawyer, including serving as a Crown Prosecutor for six years. Shai believes that intelligence and informed policy represent our best chance at creating a fairer society. She's keen to move away from tribal politics. Today, I speak to her mostly about our current housing crisis. Shai, thank you for coming on our show, Pod Defend New Zealand. Could you tell our listeners how you ended up getting involved in politics? (laughs) Okay, so my career background is in the law. I was at a law firm here in the city in Auckland for seven years, and I did a mix of civil litigation and Crown prosecution work. And I loved my job a lot, and especially the crown work. But I really did get to that point where many of us do, and you just get so sick of being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And there is nothing you can do in that job that is stopping or addressing those societal issues that are driving people into the system in the first place. Because everybody coming through the criminal justice system, they are symptoms. And we can continue to address symptoms and all this tinkering of all these current governments that we've had for the last 30 years, or we can start talking about those underlying drivers of those problems. And when I looked around, the Opportunities Party was the only group I could find really focused on the underlying drivers and keep going down those layers to find those root causes. And I did not first volunteer with TOP ever intending to ever step forward to be the deputy leader, but I got to a point where I'd been asked for a while to at least put my name forward to be a candidate and thought I'd regret not trying more than saying no because whatever stupid reasons, you don't ever try to challenge yourself in life, right? Whether it's just fear or just feeling like no imposter syndrome, which was a big one, I think, for me for a long time and just thought, okay, let's do it. I'll go all in and yeah, best decision. I'm so glad I did as much as this was the most difficult thing I think I've ever done and I definitely went into this political campaign very I guess naive as to what is involved in running a campaign how difficult it is and all those challenges that you just don't even think of and so yeah it was crazy hectic stressful rewarding insane year that I'm sure most people can relate to. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about political issues related to New Zealand. It's aimed to be sort of neutral and not swaying too much towards your own political party, but you're more than welcome to mention them. I know housing is an important topic to you, and it is one that is very current at the moment. I mean, even in the pandemic, we're still seeing housing prices rise astronomically, which is almost comical. So my first question to you is why worry about housing when people can still rent? They're interconnected. Renting issues are housing issues. It is just a different part of the exact same story. And, you know, the starting point is that this crisis, this housing crisis, it is the biggest driver of poverty and rising inequality in this country. 
And it is creating this huge intergenerational and class divide between property owners and renters because it wouldn't be a problem whether you were a renter if your quality of life was the same, if your opportunity to grow your wealth was the same. But what we have is this huge divide that grows because the second that you own property in this country for the last 30 years at least, you know you're on an elevator going up. And those who are renters are really getting squeezed because they're paying more in rents each and every year. Their ability to save shrinks each and every year and their wages are not increasing and they're not able to grow their wealth. And so we have very immature rental laws in this country. And we have countries like Germany over in Europe, and we often look over to what they're doing because the last eight years aside, the 30 years prior to that, they had relatively flat house prices and a completely different idea in terms of how their tenancy laws work and tenancy for life. And that's something we should be looking to in this country where the group of ownership It's been declining for over 50 years. It's the lowest it's been in 70 years currently. So you're saying that the percentage of people owning houses is reducing? Exactly. Particularly in 39 and under, particularly in those age groups. And so what we're seeing is our rental group is going to grow. We shouldn't have to wait till the voting scales are tipped in favour of renters that they finally get proper rights. And You know, we still have people who, it's not just that we have terrible housing stock in this country that's terrible quality. People live in them because it's either crappy shelter or no shelter is the choice for so many people. So we're dealing with affordability. We're dealing with the quality of the housing that people are living in, which, as we know, has huge impacts down in health. We have diseases that a first world country shouldn't even have. We're spending billions a year on respiratory illnesses. The housing problem really does go into so many other parts of our lives, of our society and our economy. And so stopping house prices rising is also going to have an impact on what's happening for our renters. To my mind, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And there's no doubt that housing prices are going up significantly more than the wages. Is there sort of hard and fast evidence that with increased housing prices is actually leading to more inequality? Not so much, I mean, obviously, in terms of assets and wealth, there's inequality there, but in terms of actually quality of life? Well, freedom's only what you have after you pay the rent, right? And so in New Zealand, we have the highest proportion of our low-income earners spending more than 40% of their income each week on housing. And actually, it's for the most part, it's more than 50%. That's the worst in the OECD. And that is leaving people a really small percentage to pay for their bills and phone and food and living. And so, yeah, the cost of housing in this country is the number one cost that drives up living costs each and every year. It really is what is creating this huge wealth divide. It affects so many things. Most renters move, you know, yearly or every two years. And so think about a situation where that's a family and you're moving your children constantly. So they're growing up in an unstable environment. Maybe that requires them to change schools. So they're having to change friends and even, you know, those have big impacts on young children. And so, and they have really long-term impacts as well. It's something that creeps into 
everyone's lives. Earlier, you mentioned Germany's house prices remaining fairly stable. What's the difference between New Zealand and Germany, and why is it that the New Zealand housing prices are just going astronomically up? There are many factors that have led us to the situation where we are in today. And the first on everyone's mind is supply. And yes, that is a part of the story. Absolutely. For decades, we have not been keeping up with the numbers that we've been bringing in through immigration and our growth in population. We have failed to keep up monumentally. So that is a factor. It's not the only factor. We also haven't dealt with what's really driving demand. And that is the distortion in the tax system. And so you imagine a tax system where we we tax things like our bank savings, our Kiwi savers, our businesses. Those things are all taxed relatively similarly and relatively high compared to other countries in the OECD. And then we have property, including owner-occupied, and it is barely taxed at all. It is a fraction of the tax that are in other investments. There's no incentive in our tax system to encourage investment in businesses because why do that when you can put all your money in the thing that is not taxed, which is housing? I find it so frustrating that the whole point in investing is if you invest in stocks or you invest in a business is you're investing in a productive asset. So it actually makes sense. You're putting you know risk into a business and that they're going to produce you money and you get some reward, I guess, for that risk. But when you're investing in housing, you're not actually investing in anything. You're not. All we are achieving at the moment in this current situation is bidding up the price of existing houses. We are buying and selling houses from each other and maybe telling ourselves somewhere along the line that you know, a strong housing market is a sign of a strong economy and it couldn't be further from the truth. And it's starving businesses of access to the capital that they need to grow, to create jobs and exports that actually do grow our economy. And unless every time we bought a new house, it was a brand new house, then sure. But as we know, that's not the case at all. And so we really are just inflating the prices of assets that aren't contributing to our economy. It's a lie. It's a lie that it's a ladder. It's a lie that it's a get-rich-quick scheme. It's just a social disaster. Because what it does, and it's really nothing more than a Ponzi scheme, because once you're on there, you only make more money when more people join your Ponzi scheme. And so those at the top who have been there for a while, they've owned property for, let's say, over 30 years, and they've been doing well, and their properties have been inflating three, four times the price since they bought them, at least. They only continue to make money when the younger generations and new buyers get on the ladder, in quotes, and contribute. It's a direct transfer of wealth from the younger generations to the older generations. And if they thought about it as that connection, they would realize where that money's coming from. It's not in the abstract. It's not just this abstract money that comes from nowhere. No, it comes from debt that you're placing on the younger generations. And it's this huge intergenerational wealth gap that is growing. And unless really bold action is taken... We are on a one-way street here, and it's really concerning to see what's actually going on. How, in your mind, is the Reserve Bank contributing to the problem? There's monetary policy and fiscal policy. So the Reserve Bank is in charge of monetary policy, and they have a very 
limited mandate. What they're really focused on is employment and inflation. And they have very few levers actually to comply with their mandate and to achieve the goals that they need to. And so one of the levers that they pulled this year, which as you know, they dropped the OCR rate, the official cash rate, way down. And so that pulls down interest rates. And so that makes lending incredibly cheap and incredibly desirable. And so, yes, it has had an impact on house prices. And that's something that some economists, including Jeff Simmons, talked about really early on in the year when they were talking about quantitative easing. Just explain to us quantitative easing for those of us that aren't well informed. So what the Reserve Bank has effectively done is buy debt, but buy the government's debt, right? And so making more money available for banks effectively is the end thing here, right? So banks have more money to lend at really low interest rates. What could have happened alternatively, and there are other ways that we could achieve stimulating the economy because ultimately the Reserve Bank was saying to the government, we only have so many levers and we're telling you to spend. They made $100 billion available because they're saying we need to get this into the economy. But instead of it really filtering through the economy, it just went straight through banks to assets, which again, some economists said that's entirely predictable, even though some people now are pretending, what a surprise. It's not a surprise actually at all. So with all this money going through banks and straight to assets, it's definitely inflated the price. It has had an impact. But what I find really frustrating is that there was no basis for the government to then not use fiscal policy to put in place countermeasures, to use their levers that they have, which are huge, that they could have seen this coming and done something about it. There are also other things you can do. So when you have a reserve bank saying that we want spending, you know, they could have worked with the government to make stimulus payments, helicopter payments available. And we've seen this. We've seen this in the States. We've seen this in Australia. So in the States at the moment, they're arguing and having big fights about the level of the stimulus payment. They've done one a few months, some months ago. They're doing another one now. They did one on Australia, which was a $750 check, just no conditions, straight to any beneficiaries and any superannuitants. And the idea is that those groups particularly low-income groups, spend any extra cash that they receive. That's what the evidence shows. And so consumer spending goes up, it spikes. And that's what you want to see. You want to see cash filtering through the economy as a stimulus. But when it's gone through the banks in the way that it has in this approach and it's gone straight to assets, it's not filtering through the economy. And in fact, when you're making people spend more money on housing, because they're taking out bigger loans because they can afford more, that's still less money than that they have available every week to spend back into businesses to have more money to spend. So that's, again, this issue with the Reserve Bank, yes, it's had an impact, but it is still just a part of a very complex story. And I think it's kind of frustrating a lot of the dialogue lately to put all blame at their door when you know, this trajectory has been going on now for 30 years. Yes, we've seen a particularly steep spike, but it's not new. So based on the evidence you have, what do you see as being the most effective and realistic way of flattening house prices in New Zealand? Realistic and achievable politically or practically? Because those are different questions. I'll ask a a, a slightly (laughs) different question. So you've just been made Prime Minister of New Zealand. 
and you have a 60% majority and you have a mandate to do whatever you like. Sounds familiar. And you're not too worried about whether or not you get elected at the next election. What would you do? I would bring in a property tax and at the lowest risk level. So that would be, I would place a 1% tax on the equity of all property. So you're not talking about a capital gains tax? Definitely not. Maybe we should touch on the capital gains tax really quickly. A capital gains tax is a tax above an already unaffordable level. The capital gains tax that the working group spoke about two years ago excluded the family home. So right off the bat, you're excluding about 75% of the value of the market. Two out of three houses, gone. You can't talk, you can't tax them. So they're out of the equation. So then you're only trying to deal with the entire problem with just a fraction of property left at your disposal to start taxing. But they have this in Australia and it hasn't stopped house prices rising. So when people talk about a capital gains tax, they may talk about it in terms of a sense of fairness and they may talk about it because there is an income there that should be taxed. That's fine. If those are your reasons, that's perfectly understandable. But it will not stop house prices from rising. It hasn't overseas. There's no suggestion that it would here, particularly because we would be excluding the family home. Also, there would, there's too many ways around it if you're excluding the family home and then, yeah, it's a mess and we also have trust and you can hide property, etc. You don't get me started on the family home because, you know, there's a big difference between a 500k family home and a $20 million family home. And there's also a big difference between even if it was your family home, if you've just made a million dollars in capital gains, it happened to be your family home, you, you would not be captured. You would not pay any tax on that million dollar gain just because you happen to live there for 10 years. So it's just not going to stop house prices rising. What we need is to deal with the tax distortion, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier, which is the different way we treat different assets and to really broaden the tax base. It needs to be simple. It needs to be unavoidable. We need to prevent trusts and different family members and any other loopholes that really only make accountants and lawyers richer need to get rid of those. So it needs to be a blanket, very small tax, but across all property evenly. So that would be land and housing. And so I'm not talking about your boats or your artwork, just to clarify, it really would just be a property tax. And it's to bring property into the tax system. And again, it would just simply be treating the equity you have in property as if it was cash in the bank, which works out to be a 1% tax on that equity. Is this based on anything that's happened overseas or any evidence from overseas? There are a number of countries that have this form of taxation. Switzerland is one. I think Denmark is one. Holland, I think, has a version similar to this. Yeah, so it, there are case studies overseas where they do have these types of taxes. and we have the most unaffordable housing in the world. It's not a coincidence that we have the most favourable tax system towards investing in housing than anywhere in the world. Those things are directly related. So yeah, that would be the first thing I would do if I was the most popular prime minister that we've ever had and I was prepared to put outcomes before popularity, then that would be the first thing. I mean, there are so many things that we need to deal with. We do need to boost supply, but we need to be really careful because some of the parties are talking about supply and just let's just chuck houses everywhere. 
but we need to tackle housing in a way that is going to also reduce our emissions and not make the problem worse. In the stat I heard the other day was that over the last, I think it was three or four years, Auckland's transport emissions have increased by 6%, which maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but that is a significant figure. And trying to remember the stat, I think it was the last three years or last four years. But it's no surprise. It's because we're building further and further away from the main centres. People are having to travel further and further each and every day just to get to where they work. So we need to build densely around active and public transport networks. And, you know, NIMBYs need to really move out the way and we need to change planning laws so that medium, well-done density is put in place and is fast-tracked. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have ugly apartment buildings everywhere. You can do it in a really positive way. And we have seen this in pockets. And the Auckland Unitary Plan definitely has made some excellent inroads in this regard. But other centres around the country really need to follow the I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but it's certainly progress and it's certainly achieving some of those outcomes that we need to see. But that needs to be rolled out the rest of the country. We need to see dense building. I've actually got a friend who's based in Singapore at the moment and I don't know the exact population statistics, but I would say that Singapore would be similar size to Auckland. High rises, and they don't have a traffic issue at all. The thing I found surprising being someone who actually quite likes living in a house with a backyard is that if you're in a decent apartment complex, yes, the room itself is quite small, but then you've got the living area in the apartment complex in terms of gym and pool and fields and that sort of thing to make up for that. So it's not necessarily a concrete jungle. And you can do it in a way where if you have features like that, you can increase a sense of community and you can actually use housing design to bring neighbours closer together. There are many positive features that can come out of that type of design and that type of thinking that, you know, it's not the traditional Kiwi house and quarter acre section, but that is long gone. <laughs> long gone. It's an argument that really frustrates me is the how it's always been done because at the end of the day, you know, 200 years ago, there was no houses in New Zealand at all. So it's not the way it's always been done. It's just the way it's been done in the last 50 years, probably. Exactly. And it's worked for some people and some people are benefiting very well out of this crisis. Talking about those people that are benefiting from this housing crisis, I can think to my parents' generation where a lot of people own houses, namely the older generation, but I don't want to pocket it into just the older generation. From their perspective, they may have seen housing as, you know, I I worked hard to get that rental property and it's a smart investment and now I'm being punished for it. How do you convince that demographic that they're not being punished for investing wisely Mm. and they have invested wisely again you investing in housing currently the system is telling you that is the most rational logical thing to do with your money but in terms of punishing them for working hard yes they worked incredibly hard and they did and that's how they got their first homes but those houses they, they bought 30 years ago have made them double triple four times what they paid for it probably four times at the moment it's probably actually more than that now so they didn't work for those gains 
they did not work for those gains. They worked for the first initial money. They did not work for those gains. Those gains are what we're talking about here. That is the inflated housing market. It has nothing to do with their hard work. What we're doing now it's, is trying to actually have outcomes that match who we as a society tell ourselves we are. We as Kiwis always say that we care about fairness and we care about equality of opportunity and that's who we are as Kiwis. But our outcomes are so far from that. It's a myth. All of that is a complete myth and denial. And so if we do want those great ideas to be true, then there are things that we have to do to achieve those outcomes. And it's not punishing people. It's them saying, actually, you know what? I'm prepared to contribute tax on my property because I know that that's going to solve this crisis and I know that's going to ensure that the next generations have the same opportunities that I did because that's not currently the case. And that's really difficult for millennials and younger having these conversations with either our parents or our parents' friends and we get the same arguments all the time. You know, we get the arguments that, oh, we paid way higher interest. You don't know how hard it was. Well, actually, even with those higher interests, their mortgage never had to be as long they never had to take as long to get a deposit in the first place. So even those things aside, our statistics are still far worse. You know, we're talking now for the median couple to get the median deposit in Auckland will take you 10 years. That's assuming the goalposts don't move. I talked to a guy a couple of months ago who bought his first house for $18,000. At the time, his salary was $18,000 a year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but then, you know, now, are you saying? I mean, I think the average house price in New Zealand is about five fifty or six hundred k. So, the argument there is that you have to be on about six hundred k a year to be able to have as fair a house price as you would have to be on seven hundred and thirty k to be able to buy the median house price on his situation. It's absolutely ludicrous. And, you know, it's not even those kind of arguments aren't even taking into the fact that oftentimes in those situations, they could be on one income families. So, and typically we're talking 30, 40 years ago, you know, the mother would stay at home, raise the children and the father would go out to work, typically speaking. These days, it is very rare. It's becoming ever increasingly rare for families to be able to afford in the long term to only have one parent out in the workforce. So that's another factor that doesn't often feature in those conversations because right now it's requiring both sides of the couple to be working and saving hard for that deposit and then contributing to that mortgage. Yeah, it's chalk and cheese. So I do find those comparisons and I hear them every day and I do find them frustrating that everyone wants to feel that it was, life was hard for them. It's not diminishing. Life was hard for them. You know, yeah, I was just talking to my nana ways. last night. She's Yeah, in different ways. I was talking to my nana last night. She's 96. She has seen a lot. Life for her was very difficult. You know, and at the same time, her and her husband were able to get a property. And yes, she worked later. But at the time, they got into a property without needing to be both in and working at that specific time. So... It is different. I'm not saying that their life was easy by any means and it wasn't. It's a completely different argument anyway, because I think it would be fair to say that our generation has it easier in general in certain areas. But then when it comes to housing and also inequality, which is related, potentially things aren't aren't as fair as they used to be. Going back to the capital gains tax, which I know wouldn't be your choice 
One thing that did surprise me, apart from the decision not to go down the capital gains tax um, line by the government, is why is it then when the majority of people don't own a house in New Zealand, why is it that a capital gains tax is seen as unfavourable by people? couple of things. Again, pretending it was a good policy. First of all, they never actually did a poll. I mean, it, I mean, I'm sure they poll all the time backstage, but there was never any formal referendum. So to say that these public views don't support change, you know, is just going off their own polling, I'd have to assume. And actually, I've seen, and whenever you have a survey one way, you're going to find a survey another way. I've seen people post surveys that show that the majority of New Zealanders do support taxation of property in some form. So, you know, I could write a book about why I think it is that this government decided to put politics above solutions, again, pretending that capital gains tax is a solution, which it's not, and why they would choose to cement political power over standing up for outcomes and solutions. It's incredibly frustrating. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who voted for this government who maybe even up to the election believed they would do something about housing. But I think the wording, the words that are coming out of the Prime Minister and our Finance Minister when it comes to this crisis are incredibly telling. And they've stopped using the word crisis. And what we're hearing instead is this wording around sustainable moderation when it comes to house prices rising. So that it's okay, this is what they're saying in this sustainable moderation, that it's okay for house prices to rise, just not quite as fast as it's rising at the moment. Now, to a lot of people, that maybe sounds very innocuous. But the reason why it's incredibly concerning is that it tells us, one, they won't even tell us that house prices rising is a terrible thing, but they're going to ensure that their policy is designed to achieve sustainable moderation. They're not even going to prioritise policy settings that will stop this madness. Now, that is incredibly telling and deeply frustrating. And the good thing is that finally, ironically, after the election, the media starts covering housing, but at least they got there in the end. And, you know, they are really on this issue because they're realising. And look, we're even getting economists out of the banks call out the situation and speak really loudly and clearly to New Zealanders and saying house prices must come down. House prices must come down. And, you know, either we deal with this in a controlled fashion or we risk real instability. And that's the message coming out of the banks. And, you know, the fact that they've taken these steps. So the Reserve Bank spoke about increasing LVRs in March. And we don't know exactly what those details are going to be, but the suggestion might be around 30% for investors, perhaps hopefully a different rate for investors. And what some of the banks have come out with, and especially BNZ the other day came out with a surprise announcement that they are going to start requiring 40% LVRs for investors. Now, that is an excellent step and it will have an impact. What that, the extent or size of that impact is remains to be seen, but it should have some impact, which is better than nothing. And so we're living in a world, and this is so 2020, right, where the banks, who for so long have been seen as these evil vessels of greed, you know, to stereotype some views out there, and they're the ones who are really seeing this crisis for what it is, 
seeing the risks to our economy for what it is and our society for that matter, and at least doing something about it. Now, I'm not pretending that it's a cure, but at least it's something. And that's something more than the nothing the government has done, sadly. The cynic in me thinks, well, the average politician has about three houses, I believe. Certainly seems like a conflict of interest. Well, you do have to call into question the conflicts, right, in in that situation. And I think some who maybe aren't actually in this current house, many obviously were de-seated this year. I'm sure a number of them from memory actually had quite a few. But your point is valid. It's how can we as the public have confidence that they are not making these decisions based on their own self-interest, but in our interest. And it's a really difficult one. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I think going back to one of your earlier questions, you know, why is it that our Prime Minister listened to the loudest voices on this taxation issue? Because that's what happens. It's who are the ones who are most likely to vote and who are the ones with the loudest voices? Because quite sadly, our poorest still vote the least and aren't listened to. And they possibly don't understand how powerful a voting group that they are. Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I think there's also an aspect of it where when you've seen your life get worse every year and you've seen that that has made no difference when it's been red or blue in power, you stop feeling as though your vote has any power and you've stopped feeling like there's any point in even voting perhaps because it's not bringing about change. Yeah. And that's not actually that unreasonable, given nothing has changed for, you know, 30, 40 years now. Well, Shai, I just want to say thanks heaps for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy listening to this podcast. So thanks again. Did you want to quickly tell our listeners about your housing petition? Yeah, thank you so much. So we have been talking a lot about housing tonight, and The first thing that we need from our politicians is that they treat this with the urgency that it's needed and that they put politics aside and focus on solutions. So TOP has started a petition calling on politicians to declare a housing emergency and to form a cross-party cooperation agreement to tackle housing so that politics gets out the way, they're forced to work together and implement outcomes that they, together with experts, come up with. So please, if you want real action, please go onto TOP's webpage and sign our petition today. www.top.org.nz That was Shaina Vot, leader of the TOP party. If you want to find out more about her or the housing crisis, visit www.top.org.nz Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time on Pod Defend New Zealand. Kia ora. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.